Uh, we walk through books of the Bible here at Faith Family Church, and we've been walking through the little book of Ruth, going ver verse by verse, covering all 85 verses. And if you're just arriving in our study, here's what happened in chapter 1. A famine hit Bethlehem. This ancient town's name meant house of bread, and how ironic that the house of bread failed to put bread on Elimelech's table. Elimelech and his wife and their two boys were Ephrathites. Ephrathites were, member of a, were members of a clan that, as one author said, was the first family of Bethlehem, the aristocracy of the town. They had the most popular last name in Bethlehem. Streets named after them, a staple family. And now, nothing. The Vanderbilts are going hungry. Their two sons were named weak and frail, likely due to being born in a famine. Elimelech wasn't having this. He packed up his things, put his family in a wagon, and he moved 50 miles away to Moab. He left behind God's land. He left behind God's judgment on the land, the famine. And he left behind his personal plot of land, the field that God has given his tribe. The land passed down to him from his father, who received it from his grandfather, who received it from his great-grandfather. Land didn't belong to one generation, it belonged to all generations. You can picture Elimelech bent down on his family farm, picking up two handfuls of dry, gritty dirt, and then letting it fall slowly through his fingers. He remembers when his father taught him how to plow and plant in this dirt. But he's leaving this dirt. He's leaving this land because it's worth nothing during a famine. This was a big deal culturally. Your life was tied to the portion of land that God had given you. You, you would never hear families in this culture say, let's move to a new city. Let's find a better school district for our children and move up the road. You didn't just move away, but they did. They went through the gates of Bethlehem in search of greener grass. And the greener grass quickly turned into quicksand. They didn't merely leave the people of God, but they left God himself. Their two boys married pagan women who worshipped other gods. The Vanderbilts found out really quickly that you cannot run from the judgment of God. Elimelech died. His two sons died. Naomi felt like there was an ocean of sorrow under her skin. Sorrow upon sorrow. The story zooms in to the faces of three widows. The three widows each have two needs. Food and family. Naomi knew that the famine in Bethlehem was over. God put bread back on the table, so the three widows head for Bethlehem. One daughter-in-law decides midway not to make the trip, and she decides to go back to Moab, but Ruth decides to go with Naomi. And you may remember Ruth's poem in a chiastic structure, where the first line goes with the fifth line, and the second line goes with the fourth line. And, and you remember it all... It, it pointed to the guts of her poem, the guts of her speech, the most important line, the middle line, the emphasis, where she said, my people shall be, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She was converted in the middle of a road. It wasn't the first time this will happen, and will not be the last. Paul was later converted in the middle of a road. 
And it was a powerful conversion because Ruth is saying, I'm immigrating to Bethlehem, but I'm not expecting a better life. Most immigrants expect a better life, but she's becoming a Christian, but not expecting a better life. Naomi, when she re-enters Bethlehem, she's all droopy and depressed. Remember what she told the DMV office? What her name was? First name, bitter. Middle name, old. Last name, hag. My name is Bitter Old Hag. That's what's happening in chapter 1. Here's what's happening in chapter 2. The book slows down. We have a documentary of Ruth's 20-hour workday back in the fields of Bethlehem. And, it, and it's really hard for us to, to, to get out of our culture and then to get into this culture. It's really easy for us to stick up our noses at their treatment of widows. I can't believe they did that. But the only marketable skill in this day was the family. And Naomi and Ruth didn't have one. This culture taught you were a nobody if you were a widow. You think you're a nobody if you're overweight. You think you're a nobody if you're not an extrovert. Or you have a low-paying job. Every culture looks at its people and tells them if they are important. Bethlehem was under the Jewish law and they protected the unimportant people. This law allowed widows to glean the corners, the edges of the field. This was God's welfare system. His way of saying, don't lick the bowl. Don't pick up all the scraps. Gleaning was the first century equivalent of walking up and down the road collecting aluminum cans to cash in on recycling. The text says Ruth just happened to glean in Boaz's field. Did you, did you feel the author there elbowing your side? Just happened. This chapter shows you that God works in the ordinary, in the mundane choices. He works under the surface. Even our accidents are in his care. There's a quote by John Piper that always just infuses me with strength. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. Often you do not see God's providence through the windshield. You see it through the rearview mirror. Boaz protects Ruth from the farmhands. From verbal abuse and, let's be honest, even, even worse. This guy has something special. I mean, his employees even sing to him. There's nothing romantic going on between Ruth and Boaz at this point. There's no love in the air. It's just grain in the hands. Ruth becomes the breadwinner. After a long day, Ruth brings home a big grocery cart and it melts Naomi's bitter heart. Now, here's evidently what happened that was left out of the story. It happened, but the author doesn't record it. We just find evidence of it later. Naomi moves back to Bethlehem, and she still has the family Ephrathite farm. And so you think she's set, right? No, she has no family to work the field. She goes out in the field, just like her husband 20 years earlier, bends down, but unlike him, now picks up handfuls of moist, fertile soil. She knows if she still had her boys, this farm could operate at peak performance once again. With no family, she might as well have no farm. Her only option is to sell it. It will go to the highest bidder unless someone in the distant family, a kinsman redeemer, 
agrees to purchase it and add it to his collection. God has answered Ruth and Naomi's need for food. How is he going to answer their need for a family? That's what happened in chapter 2. Here's what happened in chapter 3. If you were here last Sunday, you're probably still recovering from the blush. I don't agree with some scholars that say that Hebrew hanky-panky took place. I think this was a legitimate way for a woman to propose. Ruth said, you're my redeemer. Let's get married. She proposed marriage and Boaz said yes. But just when you're ready to wrap everything up and say happily ever after, a snag shows up and has potential to ruin the whole thing. A fly in the ointment, an obstacle in the road, a wrench to a happy ending. Boaz remembers that according to the law, there's another kinsman redeemer who has first dibs. And chapter 3 left several matters unresolved. The most important one is when will Boaz talk to this other redeemer? Which guy will marry Ruth? Secondly, what is a redeemer? We don't have a category to use that name for just a regular dude. My wife doesn't look at me and, and say, you're my redeemer. She doesn't point me out and say, man, you see that stud muffin over there? He's my redeemer. No, Spurgeon's wife called him a Tershatha, which is the Persian word for the revered one. I'd ask Sarah if this was an option. Would you call me the revered one? And she said, never mind, you don't need to hear what she said. <laughs> the Hebrew word translated into English, kinsman redeemer, the Hebrew word is the word goel. There are three basic things a kinsman redeemer or a goel does. They would do a redemption of property, a redemption of person, or a redemption of blood. Redemption of property, that's found in Leviticus 25. The, the picture here is the land was everything in this day. So there was a provision for the land to stay within the family, or at least, if not within the family, the clan, which was the group of families. If the land was lost because of something like famine or poverty or even because of death, there was a means set up where a kinsman redeemer could come, redeem that land, and could keep it in the family. Like a rich uncle that you could call on if you're in trouble. The adult male here would have been a relative of Elimelech and his two sons. Not necessarily Ruth. He had the right to buy the ancestral land and return it to the family's inheritance. So that is a redemption of property. But then Leviticus 25, verses 47, there's a redemption of person. Here we see the kinsman redeemer is a relative who, if he has a relative who, who was forced to sell himself into slavery, he can buy that person out of slavery and set him free. That's a redemption of person. And then finally, Numbers 35, we have a redemption of blood. And here the word goel is, is often translated, not only kinsman redeemer, but avenger. When a relative of his is murdered, as the kinsman redeemer, he is to avenge the death. It is the duty of the goel to protect the honor of the family and exact revenge. Now what happens in chapter 4? Because this is where we are. The emphasis has previously been on ladies for three chapters, but it shifts in chapter 4 and it's on two men. Two goels, two avengers, two kinsmen redeemers, two... And here's what we're going to discover in the first 12 verses. Two goels at a gate, one goel holding a shoe, 
And they're all pointing to the ultimate goel who controls all the gates and holds the final shoe. Two goels at a gate, one goel holding a shoe, and it all points to the ultimate goel who controls all the gates and holds the final shoe. That's all I have for you today. No applications. I gave my wife this breakdown and she said, oh, that's nice. And I said, Sarah, that's not the reaction I was hoping for. She said, well, what did you want? I said, you know, some shock and awe, some repentance, some fear and trembling. That outline changed my life. You know, anything along those lines. Now, I know you, unlike her, are stunned by the eloquence of that outline. And uh, I want you to regain control of yourself and let's examine two goels at a gate. Notice verse 1. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And, and notice this author. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Another elbow to the side from the author. See that? Just then, suddenly, out of nowhere, behold, the other Goel, the other close relative, the other kinsman redeemer comes by. Now, you do not need to conclude that Elimelech, Boaz, and this other redeemer were actually blood brothers. They were likely cousins, maybe, maybe second cousins. And why would, why would Boaz immediately go to the gate? Because everyone would be streaming through the gate of the city to find work. Whether they're coming from the threshing floors or the fields or from other cities. The, the city gate was like the city center. Like an Italian piazza. In tightly built cities, the gates were the most active part of the city. People conducted commerce at the gate. Uh, Proverbs 31 talks about a faithful woman whose, whose husband is respected at the gate because of her testimony. Job spoke about sitting down at a city gate and all of his friends getting up and walking away. Job 29. In the law of Moses, parents of a rebellious son were told to bring him to the city gate where the elders would examine the evidence and pass judgment. Deuteronomy 21. So the city gates were the first century courthouse. Many legal matters were settled there. Legal transactions like buying land or trading camels. It all took place at the gates. And notice the end of verse 1. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Once you entered the city gates, there was a series of small alcoves lined with benches. The one that's pictured behind me would have been similar. Surrounded by seats, these were seats of decision. Notice that Boaz calls his second cousin friend. Why friend? He knew his name. The author knows his name. But no one tells us his name. In fact, the story goes to great lengths to keep his name from us. We have a, we have a word play. Their Hebrew word friend is poloni alimony. A, roaming, a rhyming but meaningless phrase that is roughly translated Mr. So-and-so. Boaz could have used any alternative like, my brother, come and sit down. My kin, come and sit down. My cuz, come here, sit down. Why this figure of speech to keep the person anonymous? Well, there's a couple of options. Uh, perhaps the omission, is the, the omission of the name is intended to spare the man's descendants embarrassment over what's about to take place. Or perhaps it implies a judgment the one who refused to raise a name for Elimelech deserves no name in the story. Notice verse 2. 
And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now we have elders sitting with Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. Elders. You know, first century equivalent of Daniel Herbster and John MacArthur and Tim Keller, right? That's what these elders were? No, these elders are not church leaders. These are city leaders. Judges, if you would, or attorneys. We know the town of Sukkoth had 77 elders. And it's likely that Bethlehem had more than 10. But 10 constituted a quorum needed for a legal decision. Boaz is literally setting up a jury. Notice verse 3. Then Boaz said to the redeemer, the, the other Goel, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Notice verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it. It's probably my favorite line in the chapter. So I thought I would tell you of it. It's a Hebrew idiom. I thought I would uncover your ears. Can you imagine how fast Boaz's heart is beating? He arrives at this gate with great expectation and fears in his heart. He says, hey, I just thought I'd let you know that Naomi has a, has a piece of land for sale. And if you want it, go ahead and buy it in the presence of all of these people. Since you're first in line. But if you don't want it, well, I'm after you and I want to buy it. Stephen Davies said, you, you may have tried to mask similar emotions as you interviewed for a job that you really wanted. It offered twice the pay, three times the vacation, and a company car. You acted cool and composed during the interview, but on the inside, you were down on your knees saying, please, give me this job. On the inside, Boaz is down on his knees saying, please, do not buy this land. Evidently, this Potential kinsman redeemer knew of Naomi, but he had, he had not heard about Ruth. And this guy is thinking, hey, buy some land? That is great. They aren't making any more land. It's always a good deal to get more land. And this can't even go to an auction. I'm going to get this for pennies on the dollar. And then he said the scariest words in chapter 4, I will redeem it. The readers groan in the background. The ladies in the city throw their head back. The men slap their foreheads. Boaz feared this gate would disappoint him. And it did. Even though we have not yet met Mr. So-and-so, we instinctively feel that he, he couldn't possibly be the guy. He's Gaston. Ruth is Belle and Boaz is the beast. The beauty has to end up with the beast. Personally, I want to look at Boaz and be like, what are you doing, man? Show some fight. Show some grit. This guy only wants the land. This gate will destroy your plans. And this would be maddening if the book of Ruth ended in Ruth chapter 4, verse 4. And Ruth and Mr. What's-His-Name ride off together in the distance. I mean, you can't have a movie with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and they not end up together. It's not supposed to be like that. It can't end like this. And just when you're about to say, stop, stop the story. Don't let Gaston take Ruth. Boaz has another card to play. He's held it close to his chest, but watch him show it. He says, in, he says to the other Goel in verse 5, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth 
the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Notice Boaz eliminates any enthusiasm this man has that he just stumbled upon a, the deal of the century by adding one negative thought upon another. Let's read verse 5 again, but do it a little slower this time. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also, this is a package deal, acquire Ruth. Who is she? Boaz emphasizes his next words slowly. The Moabitess, our ancient enemies. And you know she's got some crazy Moabite cousins. They're going to want to move in. And, and he continues, the widow of the dead. What happened to the dead? Was it her cooking? He continues, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. In other words, have a child. Why? The verse continues, to raise, up, to raise him up for his inheritance. In other words, when, when this boy that you're going to have with Ruth reaches independence, give the land you just bought to him as his inheritance. Mr. So-and-so says, this is, this is an investment nightmare. First, I have to sully my clan with mixed Gentile and Jewish offspring. Then I get, a, then I get the mother-in-law, Naomi. She's kind of ornery. She named herself Bitter Old Hag. I mean, it's kind of like saying, hey, I've got this. You should buy this house. It is a great deal. But on the second floor, there's a cranky old woman. And she comes with the house. And he's probably already got a mother-in-law. Maybe two in this culture and he's not stupid he's not going to add another one so as quickly as this guy said I'll buy it he's now looking for a fire escape Mr. So-and-so backed away faster than a man faced with a coiled rattlesnake I wanted the land not the lady the wheat not the woman I don't want Elimelech's name to be removed from the town records but I don't have time to deal with such complexities See, we have two Goels at a gate. And let's transition. We also have one Goel holding a shoe. I did not put verse 7 in, in today's scripture reading because the author is actually interrupting the story to explain a Bethlehem custom that, that wasn't very familiar to the audience or the reader. And I want to read it to you. Notice verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So here's what happens. Mr. So-and-so takes off the shoe and he gives it to Boaz. Boaz is holding the shoe. But by holding the shoe, he's holding a lot more. He's holding permission to marry Ruth. He doesn't see Ruth as a problem. He sees her as a princess, a beauty. It's not all about profits and loss for him. It's about love and legacy. And shoes play a symbolic role in ancient property transactions. In fact, why don't we do a little biblical theology of shoes in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, shoes and feet symbolized ownership and possession. The people of Israel were told by God in Deuteronomy chapter 11, every place where the sole of your foot treads shall be yours as an inheritance. So they're connecting a shoe, they're connecting a foot to owning land. 
And in fact, the reverse was just as meaningful. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, when Moses met with God at the burning bush, God made Moses remove his shoe as a symbol that Moses owned nothing. And God was sovereign ruler over all. This sandal transfer indicates the same transfer of power. The relative is literally saying, Boaz, you can walk in my shoes. You can have my right as your own. You own that property now. And this actually, the exchange of the shoe, signaled the conclusion of the real estate transaction. The shoe was like having it notarized. So Mr. So-and-so left a small alcove with no shoes. He walked back home and entered into his house and his wife said, where are your shoes? And he said, it's a, it's a long story. His mother-in-law came down the stairs and said, Mrs. So-and-so, I told you he was worthless. He couldn't even keep up with his own shoes. Look at old barefoot sitting in the recliner. Mr. So-and-so hears it. He whispers to his breath, I made the right decision. I couldn't imagine having two of her. All right, let me, let me take a little sidebar here. Some of your study Bibles may refer to this as a, as a leveret marriage. And I admit that the shoe thing brings some similarity, but I don't, I don't think so. I believe it's an erroneous assumption that's been repeated over and over and over again all, all throughout history. I wouldn't die on that hill. I just don't see why so many people claim it as fact. Uh, the, the stipulations don't apply. So I don't think this points to a, a, a leveret marriage. This only refers to the kinsman redeemer marriage. Now, another little sidebar here. It's okay for Christians to get lawyers and attorneys in on deals. When you negotiate deals, have a contract and get legal counsel. Do what Boaz did. He effectively had the 10 elders. He got his CPA, his attorney, his land surveyor, his appraisal at the meeting. All the legal heads of Bethlehem. The shoe was the signed, sealed, delivered documentation he needed. It was the county seal. And you say, Kyle, well, it's, it's with other Christians. So I don't need to involve the legal processes. Oh, it's with my biological family. It's no need to get it all signed, sealed, and delivered. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right. Let's jump back in the text. Verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. So they didn't have 45 pages of closing. They had witnesses. If called upon, these witnesses could verify the validity of the transaction. And, and by this time, the little alcove is packed with people. Not only elders, but community people. Not only John Grisham, but John Doe. They all know Boaz. They all grew up with Naomi. They recently met Ruth and they're ecstatic. Notice as they celebrate in verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. The townspeople explicitly compared Ruth to Israel's founding mothers, Rachel and Leah. You may remember that these two ladies bore 12 sons that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Rachel and Leah were the mothers of God's people. 
And so that's what they're praying, that Ruth will be the mother of God's people. Little did they know that Ruth would be one of the mothers of God's son. They continue verse 11. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be, be renowned or famous in Bethlehem. May, may, you, may you be worthy of the Ephrathite name, the Vanderbilt name. May you be worthy of that. And, and perhaps the most striking aspect of the blessing on Boaz and Ruth, however, is the analogy that is drawn between Ruth and, and Tamar in verse 12. The, these women are both alike and then very much unlike one another. Let's, let's just compare the two, Tamar and, and Ruth. Tamar's story is found in Genesis 38. Uh, one's an outsider. Uh, Tamar's an outsider because she's a Canaanite. Ruth's an outsider because she's a Moabite. Uh, Tamar lost her husband. Ruth lost her husband. Tamar had no children. Ruth had no children. Both ladies dressed themselves up in a pursuit of a child and a future. But here's where the similarities end. Tamar concealed her identity to Judah. Ruth revealed her identity to Boaz. In the Tamar situation, there was intimacy. In the Ruth situation, there, there was no intimacy before marriage. So the end result of both unions, legitimate and illegitimate, were children who, in the providence of God, had an important part to play in God's plan. The picture is the line of Judah being carried on by a non-Israelite woman. The line of the Messiah being carried on by a non-Israelite woman. That's what's going on here. May just as God carried on the line through Tamar, a Canaanite woman, may God carry on and bless your line through this Moabite woman, Ruth. Two goels at a gate. One Goel holding a shoe. And they're all pointing to the ultimate Goel who controls the gate and holds the final shoe. In the cartoon movie Ants, I'm about to dive deep here, okay? In the cartoon movie Ants, uh, most of the action follows the, the small-scale life of a neurotic worker ant, uh, voiced by Woody Allen, in his quest to win the love of a princess ant. But as the movie concludes, the camera pans outward to show the audience that the narrower action has, has been taking place in Central Park in the heart of New York. Thus, we are invited to consider the parallels between the lives of the ant in the movie and the lives of the real people around them. The redeemers at the gate serve as a similar narrative function. You are meant to pan out. The two Goels point to the ultimate Goel, Jesus Christ. The two Avengers point to the last Avenger, the Messiah. The two Redeemers point to the full and final Redeemer, Jesus of Nazareth. The people wished on Boaz a family, a name, and an inheritance. When Christ redeems us, we are made part of his family. He gives us a new name. And we receive an inheritance. You know, I have in my notes here, emphasize don't fear the gates. Don't fear the gates. I, I don't want you to fear the gates. The, the mention of the city gates in Ruth 4 illuminates what Jesus Christ meant when, when he promised his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. In other words, Jesus is saying all the plans, that's what the gates represent, all the plans, all the schemes, all the decisions, even the final word of hell will not be able to overpower my church. And friend, that's you. Even hell can't prevail over you. Hell has gates. We have the one who controls the gates. Jesus controls all gates, all decisions. I'll prove it to you. There was a dark night in which a decision was made at a Jerusalem gate in an alcove by the city elders to condemn Jesus Christ to death. It was the wrong decision, an unjust decision, a decision at the gate. Who made the decision at the Jerusalem gate that night? Was it the soldiers? Was it the Jews? Was it Pilate? The answer is yes and. Yes and God. Ultimately, God controlled what happened at that gate because he ordained that gate. Things were not spinning out of control at the gate when Jesus heard the verdict, guilty. Things were not spinning out of control at the gate when Boaz heard from the other redeemer, I'll redeem that land. And everything isn't unraveling when at the gates there's a decision against you. If, you. if you were recently disappointed at a gate, don't think, don't think God for a moment lost control. You may not understand what God is doing at the gate, but it's 10,000 things you can't see. 10,000 things. I want to I work this next statement into your soul. Just want us to work it into our souls. God is always, and I want to work that into your soul as well. Yeah, please, please give. And uh, I, could, I could do that in, in many ways. Um, see, my media team in the back, they're always helping me. They, they always know what the real needs are. In the back All right, here, here's, the, here's the statement. Uh, God is always and everywhere at work in his gates to accomplish his purposes historically, globally, and personally. God is always and everywhere at work in his gates to accomplish his purposes, notice this, historically, globally, and personally. Like, I can't work that into your soul. I can't. But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will. That's why I pray for his aid every Sunday to breathe on this and make it live. This Bethlehem gate is connected. This Bethlehem gate is connected to the Jerusalem gate, even though there's 3,000 years that separate them. If there were no Bethlehem gate, if there were no Bethlehem gate here, there would be no Jerusalem gate 3,000 years later. You understand that, right? If Boaz and Ruth did not get married, they would not have a son whose name was Obed, and then he would not have a son whose name was Jesse, and then he wouldn't have a son whose name was David, and he wouldn't have a son who was named Solomon, and just continue this journey down. There would never be a man named Jesus. If this gate didn't turn out this way, God's plan of redemption for the ages would have fallen apart. This story is bigger than Gaston and Ruth. It's about God and you. This beautiful Jesus became a beast. Beat so badly, unrecognizable as a man is what the scripture says. Literally, he looked like a beast. 
And we, we should have never worried about this story working out after all. Because here's what we find. The pre-existent Jesus was at the gate in Bethlehem 3,000 years earlier, controlling every conversation, every decision, because it needed to go perfectly according to plan so that one day he would hang on a cross and hold a shoe. On the cross, Jesus had a shoe in one hand and a cup in the other. Jesus drank the cup of wrath without mercy so that you can drink a cup of mercy without wrath. When Jesus resurrected from the grave three days later, the gospel records tell us that his grave clothes were folded neatly in the tomb. You know what it doesn't say? That they found any shoes. Jesus came out effectively holding the shoe, saying the words of 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. I shed my blood to redeem not some farmland but your soul. And, and some of you are you're not Christians. You think you are. It's, obviously, it's obvious you're not. And you're, you're attempting to grab the shoe and purchase your own redemption by coming here or doing good things, serving your country. Friend, you, you cannot hold that shoe. You don't have the qualifications. You don't have it in the righteousness bank what it costs to purchase redemption. God did not spare Jesus from that gate so that he could spare you from the ultimate gate. The only gate that could actually destroy you. The gate of sin and death. See, our avenger burst through those gates on a Sunday morning and he says, no gates can hold me. No, no gates operate without my permission. No price was too high for me to save my Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.